Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Everybody Hates Your Brand, the podcast for all things marketing. And I say a new episode, but this one's a bit special. Welcome to the 50th episode of Everybody Hates Your Brand. Yeah, I can't quite believe we're at 50. Um, We started this in, crikey, uh, I don't know, 2020 at some point during the pandemic uh, as something to kind of keep us going. And I say we because the original idea and the original sort of progenitor of this was myself and Jen Kleinerhans, my uh, now fiancé. And it felt right for the 50th episode um, to get Jen back uh, on the podcast. Jen has done an extraordinary amount um, since she was last uh, on the podcast, around episode 30, 30, 32, something like that. Started a business, written three books, got a, a podcast that does phenomenally well, has a YouTube channel and all those kind of things. And she is an expert in behavioral science, in CX, in marketing, in business in general, and, and a phenomenal um, mind and a phenomenal talent. So getting her back on for the 50th felt like it brought it back around a full circle so you're about to listen to my interview with jen i hope you like it so yes it's the 50th episode amazingly uh chuffed to bits to be here and we wouldn't have gotten here without my co-host for the first 30 or so episodes the person who suggested we do this in the first place and oh yeah, my fiance Jen Kleinerhans. Welcome <laughs> back to your podcast, I suppose, Jen. I'm back. I don't know. No, this is definitely. I mean, r slash yours. This yes, you're still over. listed as a co-host. Oh, okay. So technically, so, it's know. our podcast still. But yes, I'm very happy to be excited to be back. It's lovely this to is- have you back. And yeah. for those of you who don't know, who weren't here for episodes one through thirty, in which case, where have you been? Uh, get binging. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to kind of reintroduce you to maybe some new fans or some fans. That's a pretentious way of talking about people listening to this podcast, isn't it? People who listen to this podcast. Um, can you just give us a bit of background into your experience and, and I guess more pertinently what you're doing right now? Yes. Please. Um, so, yes, allow myself to reintroduce myself. I am Jen Kleinhens. I am the managing director and founder of a marketing consultancy called Choice Hacking, where we talk about behavioral science, marketing psychology, and AI, and how to use all of those fun tools to make more effective and interesting marketing. Um, yeah, it's it's like I said, I think we were the the original, the OG team on we the were. podcast back when we were living someplace where it was kind of difficult to record us both in the same room. Um, yes, yes, it was, some and updates. it was also it was also a a COVID <laughs> idea. Um, yes. And a, a brilliant one by you, I have to say. I'm still sat here talking on the same microphone and all that kind of things you bought. Since, uh, obviously, we left that place, and this has been going for X number of episodes, you've been doing all sorts of stuff. You I have, have a, a podcast, you have a YouTube channel, you have all manner of fun things going on, don't you? I do. So there is a book called Choice Hacking. There's a podcast called Choice Hacking. There's a website called choicehacking.com. And there's a newsletter called the Choice Hacking Newsletter. As you can tell, I got one good name. <laughs> I stuck with it. I am a branded house, not a house of brands. Yes. I'm waiting for the merge. <laughs> well, I, I did recently move my newsletter to a new platform, choicehackingideas.com. You can still find it at choicehacking.com. But it's it's been kind of wild to go like, oh yes, my choice my newsletter is called Choice Hacking Ideas. I'm like, oh, so a, a slightly slightly deviated name here. Um, it is. 
It is. And actually, your listeners will be the first, or our listeners will be the first to hear this um, announcement, which has no date, but will happen in the first uh, like month or so of next year, which is uh, we are launching an AI edition. So Choice Hacking Newsletter, the AI edition. Um, and while I would never call myself you know, an AI expert, I'm not building AI. I have helped you know, a few firms kind of uh, work AI into their systems, figure out how to mm-hmm. use it in customer experience. And so it felt like a really natural thing because so many of my readers were asking about like, how do I use AI? And not just generative AI, but, you know, predictive AI, yeah. um, the, the, fun, the fun new buzzword, uh, synthetic data. That'll be fun. Something we've been but using. How is that? Oh, so this is, this is the whole thing that Mark Ritson was talking about. They've coined this term. Uh, if you know our, our Dragonfly tool that we use, predictive mm-hmm. analytics, with, it's an AI tool that we like both a visual, use. Uh, so for anyone who doesn't know, um, A, we had Mark Bainbridge of Dragonfly on the podcast. I forget which episode. I'll link it in the show notes. Yes. But um, secondly, it's, a, it's essentially, it's an AI that mimics the human eye to identify salience mm-hmm. of visual elements within advertising, video, all sorts of other stuff. Yes, it gives you like a heat map of yeah. any of your creative or your digital experience to say people look at this, they forget huh. this, or they forget this, they don't look at this. Yeah. Uh, so it gives you an idea of where attention's going. Anyway, so that apparently, um, th- those type of tools are now called synthetic. Is it synthetic data? Is what they're calling it? I you mean, I've been just it for like six years. Leave it, like no, I've been having more conversations about zero party data in the last <laughs> six months. It used that to just be, that. it never used to have a name. Mm. Or you just used to sit under first party data. Mm-hmm. I don't. It just this might be an old man, old marketer yelling at clouds, but for God's sake, um, everything's got to have a name. Um, anyway, in terms of the stuff we're going to talk about today, we kind of got a few different areas to talk about. One of which is um, CX, and you mentioned that you'd written a, uh, a book called Choice Hacking. You've also written other books. One of which is um, how to make a CX that sings, or something along those lines. I should know the exact words. I'm not far off. Uh, listen, I I think I've I've probably like slightly tweaked the title a few times actually. Um, yes, so it's uh, basically a customer journey mapping book. Yes, uh, and it's how to create an experience that sings. Right, so CX that sings. Absolutely, uh, is the name of the book. Uh, but yeah, so that was like my very first foray into the world of you know writing books about marketing and it, customer journey mapping is something I do quite a bit of. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if this is like an early segue into, you know, what is customer experience and what do I do all day? But <laughs> customer journey mapping is a big part of that. Obviously now, because, you know, I've been working as uh, this behavioral science and marketing psychology expert for some years now, I have a process that we use at um, Choice Hacking where basically I, I do customer journey mapping, but then we pull in um, some really helpful like behavioral science tools. We think mm-hmm. about things like customer mindsets, things like that. So it's customer journey map plus the benefits of behavioral science and marketing psychology. Cool. Well, on the CX point, one of the things that I always find really interesting is defining what the hell that actually means. And it's something that I asked um, one of our, uh, I guess, friends or past colleagues, Lucy Halley, in a, in a recent interview uh, podcast. I was like, okay, well, you, you work for Have a CX Helia. Well, how would how do you describe CX? Because it, it to some people, it's an extension of CRM. To some people, it's customer service mm-hmm. to others it's like ux so from my perspective or from your perspective who cares about my perspective from your perspective how do you define cx 
Yeah, I mean, I think of customer experience as sort of being that overarching bucket, right? So mm-hmm. it, it captures a lot of things underneath it. So user experience would be underneath it. I mean, you could even say service design is underneath it. So like, if you're working with a business, like, I don't know, like a Burger King, you know, yeah, you're good. You can do things like design marketing comms for them, but you can also design the employee experience. So what is an employee touching? Like, what are the the goals that they have, the challenges that they face and helping them sort of, you know, understand, like, how do we get over all of that? Um, to me, it's customer experience really does go from the top of the line all the way down to the bottom of the line. So that might be a TV commercial. That might be an email that people get. It might be the website that they go on. It might be the journey that you've designed, or, I mean, even, you know, an AI like engine that's happening underneath all of this to give them personalized recommendations. It's really like the big, the big bucket under which, under which, in my opinion, a lot of different kinds of things sit. Like I said, user experience, marketing communications, um, you know, marketing comms journeys. Basically, you name it, and that's under the CX banner. So, okay, so that's a really broad definition, understandably so, given the title, I guess. When you think about implementing CX or or trying to improve overarching CX. What are some of the barriers you face? I can imagine one of them based on that conversation is the sheer scale of the challenge and therefore the sheer number of departments and intertwining processes and technology and all those things that all of a sudden come under the CX banner where maybe they didn't, you know, people don't think about themselves as that way, they think about themselves as marketing or operations or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. But what are the kind of do you think that's a barrier? And what are the other things that you've seen when you're trying to implement sort of CX, um, I guess, CX projects, you know, CX, CX programs? Yeah, I mean, I think a true customer experience person is a bridge builder, right? So you, whether you're building bridges between like marketing and operations or like staffing and comms, like you're the, basically that person who's sitting in between a lot of different groups and helping them, A, talk to each other and B, I think, know what's going on. It's to me the big charge of somebody who works in customer experience is creating a smooth experience for a customer, which as we know in a business, you know, you have it's like the metaphor of the duck and the feet, right? The duck glides across the water, the feet like paddle furiously. And yeah. so as a CX practitioner, you're trying to create the duck experience for the customer, this gliding smooth all my problems are solved. I love your company. Everything's wonderful. You're consistent. You build trust. Mm-hmm. You know, I love everything that you do. And from the feet perspective, you're trying to, you know, get a bunch of people who don't normally talk to each other to talk to each other in service mm-hmm. of the customer. You're owning the customer a lot of times in these bigger companies, um, because even though they'll have a group that technically is a customer experience group, they usually have the same issues that everybody in customer experience has, which is what is CX? And I don't understand. Are you trying to tell me to change the way that I do things? Um, and so it is a lot of bridge building. I think it's also helping people know what the know the left hand, know what the right hand is doing, which especially in big companies is a big challenge. Um, but then even you know with smaller companies, it's about have you even thought about what your customer is actually experiencing? And the question is, or the answer is usually no, because they think, oh, well, we just redid the website. Oh, that's great. But how are you driving people to the website? Well, mm-hmm. uh, we're not really sure. Okay, what happens after they buy something from you? Uh, well, sometimes they get like an email newsletter. Okay, but what is the, do you like communicate with them at all while they're waiting for their product? Uh, no, we didn't really think about that. So it's it's asking those kind of questions to say, yeah. okay, well, what's next for the customer? And then working with the business to tie all the, you know, or herd the cats, to use another metaphor, um, 
to get it to a, a place where it's a smooth experience for the actual yeah. customer. Yeah, because one of the things, you know, silos, differing objectives, whole bunch of different stuff there that can just get in the way of all that. Definitely. Make that harder. So you talked about, um, as part of choice hacking, um, behavioral science and applying behavioral science um, Two things like CX and all those kind of and all those kind of things. Let's delve into behavioral science. We have done, I say we, can I can say that now? We have done uh, podcasts in the past where we've talked about behavioral science principles and behavioral science things that can be applied to whether that's marketing, CX, whatever area you want to you want to kind of put those in. So again, have a look back at I think I think in our top ten episodes, I think what, uh, the introduction to behavioral science is still like number five or six. I think. In oh, terms wow. of the podcast we've done here, which is which is pretty cool, um, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of talk about behavioral science over the last, mm. I guess, five years, maybe four or five years. Um, I mean, really, go back to Nudge by Richard Thaler, probably, but the, the book Nudge. But mm. that idea of behavioral science has become more and more prevalent. Um, what value do you think behavioral science? Big question. This one. What value do you think behavioral science can give to businesses as a whole and potentially given this is more of a marketing channel to marketers specifically i mean obviously there's a lot of benefits i mean i think to me the primary benefit is well let, let me back it up here let's talk about a cognitive bias called the false consensus effect before i talk about why i think behavioral science is a good thing um so there is a cognitive bias called false consensus effect which basically says that we as people we as marketers we as school teachers or you know whoever it might be people tend to overestimate how how common their behaviors and thoughts are. So the example is, if you read the New York Times every morning, or British audience, if you read The Guardian every morning, then you think, and someone asks you, okay, how what percentage of the British public reads The Guardian? You might say 60 or 70%, mm -hmm. because you read it, you think more people read it than who actually do. So we see this a lot in, in businesses. I mean, a good example, I've talked about this, like, these terrible business failures where people think their opinions are the opinions of people at mass. And then they'll start to look mm. at research and sort of bend it in their minds to confirm what they already believe. Okay. Yeah. So one thing that behavioral science does is helps us get out of that mindset. People do things you wouldn't expect. People do things differently than you do things. And context has a huge bearing on how people respond to something. Because I think this is, to me, is one of the big myths of behavioral science and marketing. And it drives me crazy when I see agencies who's, they get somebody who's read like Richard Schotten's book and they think this person is now a behavioral science person. They know everything <laughs> about behavioral science. And you see them kind of go like, it's, it's like a magical tool. It'll fix all our problems. I, I got news for everybody. There's no magical tool that will fix all your problems in business. But what this will do is help you kind of get under you know, the, the skin of a customer and how a customer thinks in a more realistic way. And it will help you move the probability mm -hmm. in sometimes single digits, sometimes double digits mm -hmm. of someone buying something that you like want them to buy, buying more of something you want them to buy yeah. um, in, in the context of marketing, obviously. And they use it in, you know, lots of different contexts like, you know, social services, government services, all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, the thing for us as marketers is it does have this really, you know, like great possibility to, to make something, you know, more effective. And not only yeah. more effective, I think to drive positive emotions, memories with customers, because I, I could talk a million, you know, years about 
I think the things that marketers get wrong about behavioral science, but one of the things that I think they really do get wrong is thinking that it's all nudging. It's not all mm -hmm. nudging. Like nudging is a portion of behavioral science and behavioral economics, where a lot of like the nudging stuff originates from, is a sub genre, a sub science to behavioral science. So behavioral science has things like neuromarketing, cognitive psychology, mm -hmm. like information design, all sorts of things. So that being said, behavioral science is not just nudging. It's, you know, changing the way people react to things, where they pay attention, what information they take from things, you know, choice, managing choice. How yes. many options do we need to have? You know, where where's sort of the optimal amount of products that we need to have to attract just the right amount of customers and get them to actually convert to purchase and not feel overwhelmed or anxious or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, so this is like a very roundabout rabbit hole way of saying, um, <laughs> behavioral <laughs> science has a lot of benefits for marketers. It is not a silver bullet, but it's absolutely something that I believe every marketer should actually deeply understand and not just sort of read a couple articles on and start to implement because it is, and I, and I think, you know, behavioral scientists kind of, you know, hit their head on a wall too, when they see people trying to, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too, because a lot of what I do with choice hacking is trying to explain really complex concepts mm -hmm. in a simple way that people kind of bite size, they get it, they feel like they can start applying something. Um, but, you know, me and other people sometimes go slightly over the line of too simple, or, you know, mm. trying to give people the impression that it is this magic thing or silver bullet, when in fact, it just helps us understand customers better. And it helps us get out of mm -hmm. our own heads to consider the customer as, you know, not only like separate from our beliefs and behaviors, which many of the marketers on this podcast or listening to the podcast will know, you know, they've had that experience of going into a client and saying, we did all this research. We talked to customers. We looked at their behavior. This is what we found. Mm -hmm. And having the CEO go, well, I don't know, because I went into the store last <laughs> week with my kid. And uh, my kid did something different. So like my antidote overrides your data kind of situation, yeah. or as I like to call it, me search, not research, yeah. me yeah. search. Oh, very droll. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's, it helps a lot of people who are in that situation understand how to counter those types of arguments. And I think hopefully, am I too optimistic to think that it might be helping some of those C-suite people stop that behavior of mm -hmm. I saw one thing and therefore all people must behave this way. Um, yes. So that yeah. would be nice. Okay. Yeah. So just a couple of things that you've talked about that I want to pull out on one of which uh, is about this idea of academia versus real world and the kind of collision between the, I guess the purity required quote unquote for academia and the application of real world. And I know because we've had many conversations about um, every now and again, you'll post something where you're trying to explain a concept in a an Instagram post mm -hmm. or a reel or a God help us a TikTok, <laughs> and yeah. um, you are you because of the context of that, you have to to make it accessible. Take things out. You have to simplify the thing down a little bit. Yeah. And I know you've been, you get comments where it's like, well, it's just not as simple as that. It's this and that and the other. Yeah. And it's like, you know, my brother in Christ, this is a 30 second TikTok. I cannot <laughs> talk about the 15 different other, other studies that, you know, like add a lot of ambiguity to this. And that's, to me, that's, you know, the danger with social media anyway, is you do have to simplify. You do have to be certain, you know, to kind of, because you want to get people interested in it, right? I see choice hacking, I think in a very realistic light, which is, 
our job is not to be with the content. Well, obviously with consulting, it's a different matter. That's where we get into the more gray yeah, areas yeah. and experimenting and all that. But with the content, we're very much the, t- the tip of the spear for many people. So marketers you know, have come to me, UX designers, product innovators, product designers have come to me and said, your content really got me interested. And where should I go next? Like, where's the kind of next level deep dive stuff? And then I can send them to the more like academic resources and things. But to get people interested in stuff, yeah, you have to naturally, you know, get things bite-sized. You have to make interesting stories and things like that. But yeah, I I do get that comment every once in a while. So I'll say this for you. So this is not Jen saying this. This is me saying this. Academics and usually male. (laughs) Wind your necks in. All right. We're just just trying to make things a little bit more accessible and a little bit more understandable and un, yes. um, understandable. Um, and I think it's interesting because this ties into the conversation that's been happening recently. People like uh, Dan Ariely has been getting into some interesting trouble. Oh, yeah. There's this, this idea of uh, Dan Ariely wrote um, Predictably Irrational. Yes. Yes. The book. And, and Irrational. And many other books, but yeah. many other books, but that's the kind of his, his like his magnum opus and uh, has consulted a little bit, lots of different companies and all that kind of stuff and getting into trouble for, some pretty shady stuff amongst it um fictionalizing data and results of, of allegedly of, allegedly allegedly um, he's very sue happy so let's just make yes, sure allegedly <laughs> allegedly <laughs> allegedly doing things where data maybe has been misrepresented yes. or has been adapted tweaked whatever that might be allegedly mm-hmm. and there's a big conversation about well some of these examples and some of the most famous case studies uh, have never been replicated in the real world, and it's all very kind of academia and mm. and and um, people trying to create a name for themselves by naming themselves an effect uh, or something on those lines. We've had many conversations about that. That the idea that undeniably some things work, so mm. defaults, right? Defaults is a big thing. Small, you know, nudge and, and what undeniably work, mm-hmm. right? You just have to look at organ donor type statistics yeah. around the world and all that kind of stuff. But how do you, as somebody who's using as one part of her business, uses mm-hmm. behavioral science, what's your kind of feedback on that situation around, well, it's not replicated and blah, 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 blah. How yeah, do you I kind mean, of like deal with that? Well, I look, I mean, in some ways, like I, I get the argument and it's mostly an academic argument. In other words, it's academics arguing with other academics, which I, look, I, I agree you know, you have one miraculous study, you can't bet a billion dollars on one miraculous study. We would never do that with a real business anyway. We would be doing, hey, you know, here's this really cool principle. We found it in a study. It seems to really interesting. You know, it seems like a rigorous study. Let's take a little bit and see if we can apply it. Now, that's different than an academic saying, you know, we re-ran that study with different people or people from a different culture or more women than men or whatever it might be. And we didn't see that effect happen again. That would be like replication crisis in Mm -hmm. actual words, right? But if you look at it from a business perspective, it doesn't matter because we're not really, we're not replicating those studies regardless. We're taking it into a totally different context and not to mention we're taking a study and we're trying to take the seed of that study and extrapolate it into a marketing solution or a customer experience solution. Now that's a very different situation and it's very separate from the actual like study itself. And in an ideal world, when you when I'm working with these companies, we have a rigorous testing process. So we are putting things out there and saying, yeah, it might work here, 
But what happens in front of your customer or your different types of customers or in mm. your store versus like the drive through or an online store or in your app? These are all like different contexts. And again, I mean, we know from behavioral science, but we also just know from common sense that when you change the context of things, you change the people that are participating in it. And sometimes if you use it too often, you'll start to see things like, you know, wear, wear down effects like, mm -hmm. hey, you know, we've you know been running these limited time sales every mm -hmm. single week for the past six years. And all of a sudden our brand is really eroded and customers don't believe us and they just wait for the next sale. Yeah, but That's not something you're going to get from a study anyway. So I guess mm. the, the point is to me, I think academics can argue if, for example, something is down to the priming effect or mere exposure. But for mm. me as a business person, as a consultant, I can say from either one of those, oh, well, we think like, let's take some inspiration from some priming findings and priming is the most contentious yeah, or mere exposure or whatever it is. And then we're going to translate it at the end of the day, like the CEO is not going to come to me and say, well, is this mere exposure or priming? And if it, if you said it was mere exposure, but we actually think it's priming, then we're not going to pay you. Like that doesn't happen. We, we care about results. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I, I think, I think definitely, that's a difference. That definitely, I think that point is, is to me, what behavioral science and, and principles do is give you the chance to test something. Does this work for me? Does this work for my business? Mm -hmm. I think I think what has to go alongside that is rigor, some some level of rigor in experimental design to make sure that the results you're getting are valid. Mm -hmm. Because I've I, like I've seen I've seen a lot of things where like people will do a pre and post thing and go, oh, it's higher after it. And I'm like, yes, but. It's on their own run up to Christmas, and we sell video games. So it that would be hard anyway. So, so I think yeah. there's a whole, you know, there's a whole separate argument about, you know, how you experimental design and how you do that. And actually, um, the couple of podcasts previous to this with Mark Razzle, we talked quite a lot about experimental design. Mark's a, oh, yeah. a very clever data scientist uh, living in Australia, um, but I think that's a really important point to add to this. If you're going to look yeah. at these principles and, and use them, make sure well, you're testing it in the right way. And I think like a big part of my business in terms of the content business is writing case studies where I look at someplace like Ikea, or I look at Netflix and I say, hey, they're doing this thing that is obviously working for them because they keep doing it, this tactic, whatever it might be. And I think that this tactic is explained by this particular cognitive bias or this particular behavioral science effect. Now, if you talk to, I like some of these companies do have behavioral scientists, but not every single one of them. Um, and I don't know for sure if Ikea does or doesn't have behavioral mm -hmm. scientists. I get the feeling they don't, but they do have some psychologists that kind of bum around the, uh, <laughs> bum around the company, meatballs. different groups and things, but that's just me too. I, I have no idea. But the point is, is to them, I mean, Ikea never set out to say, we're going to use psychology in our experience, but they're clearly using psychology, whether yeah. they know it or not. Or they're using behavioral science techniques or nudges and things, whether they know it or not. But they're yeah. in one of the greatest testing environments you can be in, which is a successful big box store. Yeah. I mean, I don't have the numbers, but I mean, an Ikea is the size of whatever it is, five football mm. fields. And it's ram packed every time you go to one. So it's got to be, you know, tens of thousands of people going by basically every single day or every week testing and and reacting or not reacting. Mm -hmm. But they don't sit around and go, oh, well, we think this is the mere exposure effect at work. Do you know no. what I mean? Like. But they've tested their way into it. And I think by knowing why this particular tactic that they're, they're using and have used for years works, 
knowing the you know behavioral science yeah. and psychology underlying it, you can then start to say to a different company, mm-hmm. hey, let's take this behavioral science principle and think about it for the context of our customers and our brand, yes. which is another and thing. Does it, another, yeah, go ahead. Does it work for us? Well, and I also Do we think- see the same? It, does it work for our brand? Because yes. a luxury brand is going to use a whole different set of behavioral Absolutely. science principles. And like, then, you know, somebody like Louis Vuitton is going to use a different set than like Walmart uses. And I think, again, that's the other danger of, you know, just reading, you know, a book, whether it's my book or somebody else's mm. book and saying like, we're going to do behavioral science everywhere, but you're not thinking about the context of things like brand, the long-term effects yeah, um, and how all of this is going to impact how a customer thinks and feels about your brand rather than just kind of focusing on very tactical things like, oh, they bought more red sofas than blue sofas Mm. and red sofas are higher margins. So that must be good. But, you know, there's obviously a lot more to it. I would say, though, uh, do read Jen's book because I saw what (laughs) went into it and there was a lot. Tears. really well written. So I would highly recommend you you read it. Yes. And I think the other thing that I would say about it before we move on to a slightly different topic is we're going to talk about different I don't want to get into the conversation about different principles and yeah. different ideas and all that kind of stuff. Largely because A, you've got a bunch of content on it. B, there are at least two podcasts in this, um, in a very hateful brand history where we talk about different different um, principles and ideas and all those kind of things. I will link those in the show notes. So we won't go over those. But I think what's been really interesting for me over the last two years and seeing this on a daily basis, living with mm-hmm. you, is you building choice hacking from nothing into what it is today. And what I'm really interested in is, um, I kind of know the answer to this, because obviously, like I say, I live with you. But for other people listening to this, how has everything you've learned from behavioral science and CX aided you in building your business? Because there's a difference between working with T-Mobile like you have recently mm-hmm. versus um, a small business and a small setup and a small startup. There's, they're very different worlds. So what have yeah. you learned? What, what, what's been the, the stuff that's kind of really helped you over the last two years? Yeah. I mean, I think for sure getting into the, the B2B buyer's mind and fi- figuring out how to create content that works to not only expand my audience, because obviously it's, it's like, marketing, right? You talk to a million people, the chances that a thousand of those are your customer are pretty high. You talk mm-hmm. to a thousand people, you're not going to get a thousand customers, even if you know, you're know you really highly targeted. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of have that balance of you know, what is the big top of funnel stuff? What is going to attract more people into you know the, the world of choice hacking? But then also what's going to get clients interested in actually you know, bringing you in and doing things? Um, and so understanding that you know, sort of I guess like a different approach to content marketing in the B2B space, because it is, it is very different than B2C. Mm. Um, And I think I've heard this echoed over and over, which is um, some marketers, I think who have never worked in B2B will say things like, if you start an agency or you start a consultancy and you don't know how to get clients, well, you're a terrible marketer and you should just give up. And it's like, well, yes and no. But I think like sales, sales skills are different. Closing a deal for someone who was a strategist, and obviously I was a senior brand manager at a big company, but I never was out there, you know, beating the bushes. I wasn't an account manager. I wasn't an account director. Yeah, I wasn't. I was pitching to clients and I was helping sell ideas, but in terms of actually closing the deal and you know sending out like you know the the details, the contracts, all of the yeah. the other things. I mean, that was a huge learning. 
um, that obviously I was somewhat prepared for, but, you know, being the person that's kind of the buck stops with you, mm-hmm. you know, you're whatever it might be. It's a very different experience than, you know, here, do all the thinking and present the thinking back and sell the thinking. Yes. Now it's not just selling the thinking, it's selling the business as well. Um, yeah. But yeah. I'd say what, what struck me talking about the kind of idea of using behavioral science and all those kind of things is when you look at the emails you send, when you look at your content, when you look at the, just the amount of conversations we've had walking Molly, our dog, <laughs> about I'm thinking of doing this, or I'm thinking of changing that, or I'm going to try mm-hmm. this, or I'm going to do that, or my favorite. I've seen The Matrix. I know what I'm going to I've only said that twice, but I think I did see the matrix. You did see the matrix, indeed. Um, (laughs) And and I think the amount of, but what I think your background has given you is start points. Definitely. So you've given yourself, to me, it's given you the ability to kind of go, okay, instead of like, I haven't got a fucking clue what I'm doing, you're going, actually, I can do, I'm going to start here because I've done this or this feels about, or this feels right based on what I know and my experience and, and what I know of the theory. And if that doesn't work, then I'm going to try this. And exactly. there's been a kind of methodical is probably too strong a word, but in terms of that idea of, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to stick with this for a while. Then we're going to change it. Then we're going to, you know, you, I think that's been, that's been the thing that stuck out to me. It's not like you went into this without any mm-hmm. idea of what the hell you were going to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, the behavioral science background, the CX background, it gives you like templates for saying, I think I know what the next move could be, or I know what two moves I need to test and how long I need to test mm. them and what I'm looking for in terms of results. I mean, being a strategist obviously gives you, you know, some good, uh, yes. I guess, instincts or good frameworks, good, you know, processes for creating a strategy of your own. But I do think that that saying, you know, it's the it's impossible. What is it? Something like you can't read the label from inside the jar is also true. So, you know, there has been a process of, you know, working with people to kind of have the conversations and obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, bending your ear (laughs) and saying like, I'm thinking about this, like, I'm not quite sure. Like, is this resonating? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also just having been in marketing for so long, I, at, at first, when I was creating content, I would take things very seriously. Like, in other words, if people didn't watch a video, I made or a TikTok got 200 views, I would be really bummed. But now I, I, that only took about six months and I was like, I can't be bummed about this all the time. Or somebody left a mean comment or somebody left a terrible review for something. But then I had to realize I was like, you know, this is a business. Like, you know, McDonald's doesn't get upset when somebody says their burgers are crap. Mm. You know, I'm selling a billion burgers. I don't care what one person says. So I had to kind of get into that mindset too, where it was like, well, this is an experiment. This is not my heart and soul. I mean, you know, this mm-hmm. isn't me having like my personality judged by strangers. It's just, you're going to get some people that love you and you're going to get some people that hate you. Yeah. And so depersonalizing it. I think you, you kind of know it intellectually because you've done it so much as a marketer, but to actually be the person like creating the content and putting your thoughts out there and putting your face and your voice out yeah. onto the internet to be judged. Um, and, um, <laughs> And pilfered every now and again, and stolen. That that was a fun. That's that that's was always a fun, a fun experience. few times that's happened. Yeah. Oh, that 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 sounds familiar. Yeah. Um. It's it's gotten to the point now where I think I get crosser about that stuff than you do. Yeah, you do. Because the only I, time. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Just wow. in terms of because I because I obviously I care about you so much. It's yeah. this idea that that somebody's hurting you that mm-hmm. winds that gets to me. Whereas you, I think you're better now. 
now. I can't, now, yeah. For sure. You're better now at compartmentalizing that stuff when well, it still winds me up. I think the thing that really irritates me is I've caught a couple of people taking either the courses that they've paid for and reskinning. I mean, by reskinning, I mean keeping all the words and the lessons and everything and just putting their name on them and then selling yeah. them to other people. So yeah. basically fooling other people into thinking they're experts when actually they've just taken all of my work and, you know, reworked it, uh, which is very, very upsetting. Uh, yep. Or when I see people, people who, for example, have taken my case studies and put them behind a paywall and put mm. somebody else's name on them and sort of run them through. There's a ton of these like AI tools now where people can run an article through something and it sort of like tweaks some of the words yeah. enough that Google doesn't catch it. But, you know, as the author, like you understand that, oh, this didn't exist anywhere because I looked for it everywhere, could find it. And I did mm. my original analysis and all of a sudden this person is charging for all the same analysis with slightly tweaked words. And it's like, that kind of stuff that. really irritates me. Because again, I feel like they're fooling the end customer. They're fooling the end user yes. into thinking that they're some kind of expert when in fact, they're probably not, or else they would be coming up with their own yeah. materials. Agreed. So that stuff makes me mad for other people. And the other the other lesson before we, we wrap this up and move on to Marketing Room 101, I think, is um, if you're working with a startup, Get paid half up front. We'll oh, just, yeah. We'll leave, it, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> and also, uh, I might add an addendum to that, which is I love my clients. My clients are great. But I would say never count on being paid on time, which is not a dig at anybody. But I think no. small businesses or if starting an agency or consultancy, you're, you're kind of looking at it from the other perspective. And I've had big companies, big agencies and things. Agencies is the one that gets me the most. Or it's mm. like, you're supposed to pay me four weeks ago. And then, yeah, they'll turn around and complain that the client's not paying them. So, you know, we should all be paying each other on time. But yes, yeah, agreed. <laughs> make sure your make sure your payment terms are uh, <laughs> uh, take into account card. the age of the business. <laughs> right. So the one thing that I did do for Everybody Hates Your Brand uh, was uh, start marketing room 101. This started after you um, left for bigger and better things. Um, oh, please. Which, <laughs> <laughs> um, was this idea that, that there should be a place uh, in purgatory mm. for things that we despise about marketing. And, and every interviewee, since I came up with this, I've got some of my own stuff in there, like the word engagement. Fuck. Um, so this is your opportunity. What would you like to put into everybody hates your brand marketing room 101 for eternity? Okay. So basically I have to pick the thing that irritates me the most about marketing or marketing. The thing that irritates me the most about marketing or, or business in general, I'll broaden it out to that. And I will, if I deem it worthy, oh. put it into everybody hates your brand room 101. Doesn't just go in okay. automatically. It does like oh, entry okay. process. So no, I'm nervous. No, I'm Tell nervous. me. I mean, honestly, I, do, I don't think this is going to like blow anybody away. It might have five years ago, but I've always thought purpose-led marketing is dumb. I think it's <laughs> it's just dumb. It doesn't make sense. I think, it, well, an addendum to that, I think a sub point is um, people who work in marketing and advertising who don't want to be working in marketing and advertising or who are jaded or who don't like it or who mm. think that it's somehow a dirty profession because we're selling things to people. Like, I like selling things to people. I don't want to manipulate people. I mean, but mm -hmm. I get a little bit of a thrill about, you know, I've, oh, I've made this like little 
you know, piece of content that people find valuable and they read yeah. it and they go, wow, this is something I didn't know before. I genuinely really like marketing and I genuinely really like the process of sales, as long as it's not manip manipulative. Um, yeah. I do feel, however, that there are quite a few people in marketing and brand management in advertising agencies and other parts of marketing who just don't want to be there, who maybe mm. thought it was one thing before they got into it. Now it's, it's something else. I, I would say to these folks, there are a lot of people who really, really want to be in marketing. And mm -hmm. if you don't want to be in marketing, then just get out. And I think that's kind of where, I mean, AJ Laffley, I think is the guy who wrote the book, the former CEO of Procter & Gamble. So I'm going to just, you know, take a dig at somebody who obviously is much more accomplished <laughs> than me at business. But I think, unfortunately, it's a, it's a great idea. I think there are a couple of examples of places where it's worked really, really well. Absolutely. But I think the problem is going through and looking at a brand and having to, having to force it to stand for something when it just doesn't stand for that thing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what really that. irritates me. If it is a natural extension of your brand, it's, it's a good thing. But if you feel like you have to force your way into you know, like, I don't know, starting a charity or something that just doesn't yeah. like make sense for you or to take a stand on things that aren't necessarily like, I, I don't think a brand has yeah. to have an opinion on every single thing. Um, I would agree I, with that. Yeah. So I, I just think purpose-led purpose marketing is a distraction. Yeah. I think a lot of people get into it because they make it, it, it sort of makes them feel better about being in marketing or selling things. Yeah. Um, when, you know, it's just not, it hasn't stood the that. test of time. Really. No, I think that goes in, and I think I, I think the two the two kind of elements that that um, really wind me up about it is you'll hear a lot of nonsense. A talks about Gen Z, for the record, never talk about Gen Z, never use Gen Z as a marketing segment. It's dumb to never the highest anything degree. Anything, but the idea that oh well, you know, Gen Zs won't buy anything unless it's been produced ethically and blah 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 blah. I'm like, look. They said that about millennials too. It's a lie. Now, I, you know, you live with me. I try very hard to buy things from certain places. Like I won't, there are certain things I won't buy, certain things I won't do. And it makes my yeah. life really difficult yeah. in certain ways. Um, but most people, 99%, and I don't all the time, but 99% of people are thinking people, cost of living crisis, all that kind of stuff. The amount of people crying out for a Primark in the town in which we live in Newbury is enormous. And you think about fast fashion and all that kind of stuff. Like so Shein, I think, Timu, like why are these that, brands so successful in the West if people exactly. only care about? Just absolute, but just yeah, absolute it doesn't make nonsense. And I would also say um, Adam and Eve DDB have been recently voted fourth year in a row, best planning function. I forget who it is, the actual organization, I'll dig it out. But I read a really interesting article. I sent it to you to have a look at as well. And what was super refreshing about it was they said, so what do you, you know, what's your kind of philosophy essentially? Mm -hmm. They come with the, the, the chap's names. Um, but they basically said, we're here to make money for our clients. Like mm -hmm. literally outright said that. Mm -hmm. And if Adam and Eve DDB, who are widely renowned as, you know, one of the best advertising agencies in the UK and certain, and in the world. In the I world, guess, certainly. Absolutely yeah. in the world, uh, you know, and who've created some amazing adverts and John Lewis, Kind of thinking you made a mistake, but anyway, um, the you know the home of Lesbinette for Christ's sakes. Mm -hmm. If they're saying we're here to make money for our clients, mm -hmm. maybe maybe listen to them uh, uh, and their success. I would say yes, definitely. Oh well, oh go on. I was going to say, I can we can I have an honorable mention? For, yes, go for it. Um, can I put Mark Ritson's latest article into? <laughs> I knew you knew was I was going to bring it up. I listen, <laughs> listen, Mark Ritson. I know you listen to this podcast. 
<laughs> Obviously, you never miss it. Can I just but... say, Mark, if you are listening and you do listen to this podcast, I would be <laughs> delighted to have you on as a guest uh, onto the podcast. Just to be clear, what Jen is referring to is a uh, a um, an article in Marketing Week where Mark Ritson posits that American marketers who were once the this is his word, not mine. The flag bearers <laughs> of great marketing in the 90s and into the 2000s have lost their way because they're not, in, in a nutshell, they're not listening to Byron Sharp, Benet and Field, and all the stuff that's going on about marketing effectiveness. And he says that, that, that American marketers have lost their way as a result. Be- yeah. Basically, he says they're terrible marketers because they don't care about effectiveness and a lot of other things that, frankly, are just not true. And every time somebody kind of uh, poked him a little bit in the comments on his LinkedIn post, he was like, yeah, well, that's uh, the one comment that really got me because I think somebody made a very fair point Two people. One person said, I've worked with a ton of U.S. marketers with big, I think it was like Pernod Ricard or something like that. Yeah. And Markerson said, well, that doesn't count because Pernod Ricard is not an American company. Okay. First of all, they count. They're in America. Yeah. They're Amer- in my example, my counter example that I told Rob and did not leave the mm. comments because I don't want to get blown up in Markerson's comments. Thank you. Because um, <laughs> he, he, he will come for me. Um, is that makes no sense. I worked for McDonald's UK for many years. Would you call McDonald's UK marketers mm-hmm. American marketers? They're not American. They're, they're British marketers who have no, an American And I think brand. that's the point. It's, it's not, it didn't say American brands. He said no. American marketers, which yes. implies people. Yes. Not exactly. brands. So it doesn't matter if they're working for an Italian brand. Exactly. And, but, you know. Okay. I, I think, look, as you know, you know, I, I think Mark Ritson, despite his, you know, his shtick is bluster and pomposity and all that sort of and stuff. And cursing. Don't forget cursing. True. But underneath <laughs> all that, he's actually quite, his teachings are relatively orthodox. You know, he talks a lot about bothism. He talks, you know, the idea of about differentiation and distinctiveness both being important. He talks about he's a lot less militant than mm-hmm. Byron Sharp is. Yeah. Um, but I think I would agree. And and what would really bother me that there was no evidence. There was no evidence. He talked he to I think Fergus yeah. O'Carroll, who's an Irishman who runs a podcast. He yeah, who said, "Oh, I think the same." It's like I think the same. He didn't really talk to any American marketers. And as as you can probably tell, I mean, I'm an American who hasn't lived in America since 2016, obviously been to America. Um, but one of the things that I really find very irritating in the world of marketing and the world, the world in general is people making broad generalizations about all American people when there's 360 million of us. Some of us are good at marketing and some of us are crappy at marketing, but just like everybody else. I've yeah. worked with brilliant marketers in the UK, Australia, and other countries, mm. but I've also worked with some really bad ones. So I don't, I don't think it's it's right for him to paint with such a broad brush. I think it is a little self-serving, uh, to be completely honest. But it, it did kind of burn me up because articles like that make my job about ten times harder. Because when yeah. I walk into rooms in England or Europe, articles like that will follow me around. And I've had people, I've had clients say to my face, "I think Americans are dumb, and I don't want to work with them." In those words. In those words. So I think that's something potentially he has not considered, which is, you know, when he writes articles like that, it makes people like me, expats who live other places Mm -hmm. like champagne problems. But it makes my my job harder with marketers because you're perpetuating a stereotype that Americans are dumb, first of all. And you're perpetuating a stereotype now that American marketers don't care about effectiveness, which I can tell you is not true. Having been a brand side marketer in America, having been through an MBA program and an advanced master's degree 
in in creative brand management. I can tell you that's not true, but I can tell you some people mm. don't. But by and so, large, we do. Was that a full MBA? Was that a mini MBA? Excuse me, um, it was a full MBA, sir. <laughs> not one course that he calls a mini MBA, which come anyway, on. it's good branding though when you think about it. It's very um, listen, yes, it's very good branding. And Mark, don't take any of this personally when you listen yeah. to this episode. But your your article did sort of. And you're all welcome on the podcast anytime. Of course. Um, well, what a 50th episode it has been. Uh, <laughs> thank you for coming on again. Obviously, you are welcome at any time. Uh, yes. You are still listed as a co-host yeah. of this podcast. And it's lovely to to hear your voice on the podcast again. Yes. Um, so thank you for coming on. Um, I will see you in about 10 minutes for when we go and walk the dog. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very me. much for coming on. Absolutely. Well, that was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> funny to have a podcast where I'm uh, on the top floor and John's on the bottom floor of the house and we're chatting to each other uh, in a podcast format. Um, I will link everything in terms of all of her her socials and books and all those kind of things in the podcast notes. Really hope you enjoyed the 50th episode. And as a small note, um, for people who've been here from the beginning, for people who have been listening and downloading recently, thank you so much. It means a lot uh, for people to listen to this and listen to, to my and my guest ramblings. Um, over the last 50 episodes um, so thank you thank you for listening in thank you for sharing thank you for subscribing thank you for doing all of those things and I will leave you with as ever and is tradition by now um, my mum's saying which is um, take great great care and be vigilant out there <laughs> <laughs>